0: Good night.
1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
0: I'm
2: Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Stephen Gaines, author of One of These Things First. A memoir. He's a best-selling author and biographer. In one of these things first, Stephen reflects on his own story as a 15-year-old gay boy in 1960s Brooklyn and his trajectory from his grandparents' bra and girdle store to, after a failed suicide attempt, a private room in one of the most exclusive psychiatric hospitals in the world. Amongst many other things, Stephen was a contributing editor for 12 years for New York Magazine. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Nice to have you here.
0: Thank you. Good to be here, Catherine.
2: Yeah, so um, your book has been described, and I've been reading a lot of descriptions of the book because it's been on the market for, uh, what, quite
0: a few months well yeah the trade um, paperback is coming out now but it was out came out last August actually you know Catherine, when you read a description of the book I think gosh it just it sounds so dreadful it sounds so <laughs> dreary and the interesting thing about the book is it's actually very very funny and I think that's kind of what saves the book from the the the, the, the description of it
2: all right. Well, I so I gave a dreadful description. All right, let's talk about <laughs> the memoir and give it more of an upbeat appeal. I know it's. It, I mean, one of the things I read about it said, well, it's not be. It's not really just about being gay. It's about a whole lot of other things. It's about your story, obviously. Okay, so uh, let's start with the story. Brooklyn, the '60s. Um, you grew up in uh, what in middle class. Jewish
0: home um, I would say it was probably lower middle class you know it was it was borough park and uh, borough park was basically like a a shtetl out of out of russia you know it was a little tiny neighborhood brooklyn was full of little neighborhoods like that what was wonderful about it was um, we had very very few prejudices, I mean I think it was equally you know one third Italian, one third Irish one third Jewish, and we lived rather harmoniously together and you know was very American and had a lot of faith and it wasn't very sophisticated though, and i'll tell you one thing that nobody knew anything about were homosexuals, and so if you happen to be a little boy who realized when he was ten or eleven years old, he was attracted to other little boys. There was nowhere to turn. There was it was um, it was a really really tough thing for me when in that neighborhood uh, to realize that I was the word wasn't gay. By the way, there was no such word as gay. The words were much harsher. than I, I was I was a fairy or a faggot, and it was hard to live with at eleven or twelve years old.
2: Okay, when you're talking about 11 or 12 years old, so that's like prepubescent or just going through puberty, and you, you, you. although I had read, even when you were eight years old, you felt that you were perhaps gay, and there wasn't the word gay, but that you were different, that you were um, not the same as your peers. And, and, and were you bullied? Because uh, talk to us about that. Uh, like how, how did you, in the context of your own family, um, what were the feelings? I mean, like here you are—you're eight years old, ten years old, whatever—and you you feel that you, that you're different, that you're, as we say, I'm, what was the word? It was homosexuals, right? And there was shame associated with that.
0: Terrible, terrible shame associated with that. Well, I I think I think the thing is is that um, at at first I started to suppress whatever I was feeling, and I became very. OCD, I, I had to touch things twice and I counted and people around me just thought I was crazy. You know, people weren't sophisticated enough to know what OCD was. And I think the psychiatrist later said that I was trying to suppress my sexual feelings. My, my, my feelings at first, just, I wanted to just hug another boy, um, with our shirts off. But I mean, that was as far as it went. But as I got deeper into puberty and the hormones in your body start, we all know what teenagers feel. Um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't suppress or change those thoughts anymore. And But yes, I think, of course, I believe that one is born gay, and I believe that I always had some sort of feelings that only really coalesced into true homosexual thoughts when it was about um, 13, 14, 15, and it was 15 when I, when I tried uh, to kill myself.
2: And you tried to kill yourself because you felt like, because you felt... I'm gay, that was the reason for the suicide attempt?
0: Well, I mean, I, I thought I just, you know, wanted to die anyway from the moment that it occurred to me that I had this curse, and this curse was going to be my story for the rest of my life, and I would never be like anybody else. And I couldn't turn. I couldn't tell my dad. I couldn't tell my beloved grandfather. And I was Jewish, and not only was uh, I uh, an abomination in my religion, but I was something unholy. And, and I, I you know, in, in, in when people are in despair, they turn to God. I couldn't do that. Um, so, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was excruciating. It was very, very, very hard for me. And then there were two guys who owned the corner candy store and had this big glass window, double glass. Window. And I went in there one day with my grandmother and I whistled and one of them, one of these guys said to the other, you know, look back. They must have only been in their late 20s. But to me, they were adults. They were real people who knew what to say and what to do. And one said to the other, uh, um, Hey, Arnie, uh, what whistles, birds or fairies? And I knew they meant me. And... uh, that was. Then they started all out uh, bullying me. I couldn't walk by the front window without them giving me a flip wrist or mincing around, and I was afraid to go in there, and I couldn't even walk to the corner. I had to walk all the way around the block, and it, it still makes me shake now thinking of it. So I was bullied by adults, and then finally I just didn't want to live anymore. I didn't know where to turn or what to do. There was nowhere to turn. There was nobody to say it gets better, certainly, and... um so I made it very very it serious. like there wasn't any
2: support there was no support you didn't feel like there was any support or anybody you could talk to or turn to or you were just completely alone with the with your just completely alone I guess with your thoughts and being bullied and unable to express any of your feelings or get anything from anybody that could help you
0: all alone That's absolutely correct, yes. They took me to the family doctor to to see why I was touching things. But other than that, I I, I was all alone. There was nowhere. I didn't know of any source to go to.
2: So then you attempted to take your own life. Then what happened?
0: Well, an interesting thing happened. You know, I always say, you know, the heroes in books and in movies are those that, uh, you know, they say uh, character is action. And at at this point in my life, I was all bandaged up and they were going to put me into a state hospital and they didn't know. The never came up. I never told them that. I never said that. I refused to tell them why I did this horrific thing to myself. And they were going to put me in a state hospital. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was watching television. I saw Marilyn Monroe leaving Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic. And they said, Marilyn, Payne Whitney, the famous psychiatric clinic. So I got it into my head that I wanted to be in the same place where Marilyn Monroe was. And that... Crazy thought changed my life. I begged and pleaded for them to put me into Payne Whitney instead of a state hospital. And finally, my grandfather came up with the money because there was no health insurance then, and and he paid a fantastic amount of money. It was three thousand dollars a month then, was like saying you know twenty five thousand dollars a month now, in nineteen sixty two. And he paid that money. And it was in that hospital that I met the most wonderful people, um, and that changed my life. That gave me the support that I needed and they met a psychiatrist there a very very good psychiatrist but guess what Catherine
2: he I know what the answer is so you tell us yeah guess what he wanted well to change, finally
0: you know. I said to him finally I said he said you know they kept asking me why did you try to kill yourself and so finally I broke down and I said I think I'm a homosexual And I I cried, and I told him what despair I was and how I hated myself in the world, and I couldn't bear it. And he said to me, dry your tears. It's an illness, and it can be cured. Do you want to be be normal, Stephen? And I said, oh, my God, yes. Now, if you give a child a button that they can press, and they don't have to be gay the whole rest of their life, I think almost any child would do that. If you could simply do that, be cured like being cured of a cold. So uh, for the next 10 years, I went into full analysis. Four days a week, it broke my parents. We drove around in old cars. We could never move. They had no clothing. They paid a fortune to this doctor. For 10 years, I went through full analysis, trying to become heterosexual.
2: And I'm I'm listening to the story. 10 years and how much money? And it sounds like what it did what did it do to your parents to your your mother to your father I mean just in terms of your whole family dynamics relationship i mean
0: well, if you have a son who tries to kill himself in a brutal manner, you know i put my I put my fist through panes of glass and saw them back and forth and he goes to a psychiatric hospital for five months you know that your child you have a sick child and parents will do anything for their sick child and and um and and they knew i was going to try to be cured i don't know if they knew at that point exactly to be cured of what so they 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 want i mean my father resented the hell out of me always but they they wanted to help they want they they paid for it they, they paid for it and um and, and the cure, of course, part of the cure, of course, was um, to date women, to go out with women and, and to um, uh, make love to women and to do this all the time, all the time on a regular basis every week. And that was part of my cure. And I did that for, my, I guess, about five years of my cure. I, I went out with a lot of lot of wonderful, lovely, lovely women. But as I say in the book, I, I always felt like a, a, a Jew in the Vatican, yeah, <laughs> It's kind of like I could appreciate the Sistine Chapel, but <laughs> I didn't really connect with the Resurrection. So, in any event, that was my uh, experience um, uh, those 10 years. And as the 10 years went by, I met so many other people who were gay. Gay liberation started. Uh, people came out of the closet. I became successful also, and I couldn't, I couldn't be ashamed of myself anymore. But it took me still a very, very long time after I stopped therapy to realize that I wasn't sick. There was no need to be ashamed. It was just totally destructive to me and to millions of other people.
2: Yeah. Um, so what did you do when going through that process? I'm interested because... Uh, I mean, of course, today, which is uh, obviously a, a, a real phenomenal, it's great, it's all of those things. But I mean, the, this, the kids today, it's its its a 180 for many of them, uh, from the experience that you've had, for instance, I mean, not only not being, they're not ashamed, but proud and out there, and, you know, all of those, uh, you know, all the good stuff. So, uh, how did you get to that point, I mean, given all that you went through for those 10
3: years?
0: Well, here- it, it wasn't easy, and it wasn't 180, and it, and, it was, and it was a long struggle. And I do remember I had a lot of professional uh, gay friends, you know, doctors, lawyers, business people, who would always say to me, Stephen, you're a bad homosexual. And I would say, what, what's a bad homosexual? And they said, you're a self-hating homosexual. You've got to get past it. And I still had it in my mind somewhere that I was ill. I still had it in my mind that somehow, psychologically, I could be cured. And and uh, it took a long time for me to disabuse myself of that notion, even subconsciously. Yeah.
2: Well, probably also, I would think, you know, you mentioned oh, you're in the hospital, you're in you know in pain, when you're in this great hospital and you're with all these famous and well-known people who would have, I would, it would seem to me, have a different attitude towards being gay or being homosexual at that time. So, I mean, that had to be, obviously, that was a plus. And um, I, I know you talk about in the book some of these very wealthy, eccentric neurotics. Tell us about some of the tell us some of the stories about the, these people and that obviously you became a part of. I mean, now you're you're part of the whole set, right?
0: You're out. There. Oh, I love the I love those people. I just and they you love know, they you. Were- <laughs> well, they didn't love me at first because at yeah. first I was, I was the you know the Jewish boy from Brooklyn, and they were all very you know wealthy. Uh, they were architects, and the one man who, who, who took me under his wing, who was really kind to me, a patient, was a Broadway producer. And of course, I was dazzled by the fact that he was a Broadway producer, and he had produced many important shows: Peter Pan, um, South Pacific, Sound of Music. And he was married to Mary Martin, the star of those shows. Mary Martin was a very big Broadway star, and I had seen her in Peter Pan. And, and he didn't have any friends there. He was very aloof and very different. But somehow he loved hearing the stories about Brooklyn and my family and all the people in my grandma's bra and girdle store, and we became close friends. And he, he took me under his wing and, and, and taught me about a lot of things. And I saw him every single day. We were on the same floor in the hospital for about four months. And uh, so he was a wonderful friend. There was a man named Harold Kellogg, who was a very famous architect from Boston, a big snob who at first absolutely hated me, called me a barbarian. And um, then one day he asked me to play bridge because they needed a fourth. And I learned so quickly how to play bridge and liked it so much that this man suddenly had respect and kindness for me. And little things like that. One woman whose father owned a giant publishing company, and I can't say which, um, she said to me, you know, these clothes that you're wearing, they're so Brooklyn. Why don't you get a pair of chinos and penny loafers? And I did. And, you know, they just changed me into somebody different than I was, and I loved it, and I loved my psychiatrist. And, you know, that psychiatrist who tried to change me, I'm not going to give away the ending of the book. I promise you I won't. But that psychiatrist who tried to change me, a couple of months ago I was speaking somewhere, and somebody said, how do you feel having the same psychiatrist as Bruce Springsteen? And I said, what? And they said, yes, didn't you read Bruce Springsteen's autobiography? He thanks Wayne Myers, too, for so. If I had only known... (laughs) <laughs> you know that Bruce Springsteen and I had the same psychiatrist, <laughs> I think he was there for a different reason than me
2: <laughs> uh well, but you become i mean you you're 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 famous you're a part of the rich and famous now as is and also obviously had a lot of talent and you know to get there besides just meeting these people you also then began to I mean produce all kind you know a journalist but you know a writer etc one of the things that you had I just was really curious about because it said I think in in one of the the things that I had read about you that like in the 60s and 70s uh, you used to hang out at Max's Kansas City and I thought oh I wonder Uh, If Stephen knows my ex-brother, Larry Zox used to hang out there in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, He was a a famous, uh, a part of the abstract Expressionist, My ex- yes, brother.
0: I know who he is, and he absolutely yeah. did hang out there, but I didn't know him. There was it was really interesting because the painters in Max's Kansas City would stay up front at the bar, and it was all kind of very macho. And they would drink, and they would have intellectual arguments, and sometimes fistfights. And then the, the 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 poet the the, uh, the poets and, and, uh, and writers would be in the back room. Which was which had a couple of drag queens and Andy Warhol. So I did know he was very, very famous. Uh, became famous, but yeah.
2: Uh, so I didn't realize that about Max's Kansas City. That you each had there was the poets' corner and then the painters and the writers, and so everybody had their own place, right? So,
0: yeah. do, do I have time for a two-minute Max's Kansas City story?
2: Uh, Yeah, you do. I I just want to tell you,
0: everybody, how I started to write, because I was working at, at an auction gallery cleaning up there after I got out of college, and a man came into Max of Kansas City and sat down at our table and insinuated himself, and he said that his name was Marjo, a combination of Mary and Joseph and that he was ordained as an evangelical minister when he was only four years old. And by the time he was six years old, he was marrying people and performing miracles, and, and that he made millions of dollars as a child evangelist. And I said to him, that's a book. And he said to me, well, I can't find a writer. Can you write it? And I said, yes. I didn't know how to write a book. You see, the hero, action is character. <laughs> so I said, yes. And, and I wrote that book, and the movie won the Oscar. The movie won the Oscar. I swear I'm not making this up. And I didn't even know how to write a book. So that's how my writing career started.
2: <laughs> but you, I mean, there's obviously you have the talent, but I'm hearing like you're a risk taker. I mean, you know, it's like, you're, like you're, you like you didn't know how to write. And then, of course, you're telling him that you can, you know, you can do this, but this project. But where does that come from?
0: Maybe, maybe feeling uh, bad about myself for so long. Maybe, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe feel like, like I would come to no good, like everybody said at home. You know, maybe it's part of that. And by the way, what, what, when, once I had to write the book, I had to teach myself to write the book. And the most important part of all of this was is that process. Then I started going to the library and spending hours every day, day after day, reading biographies, taking notes, trying to figure out how it's done. And that's a contrast, kind of Wayne Myers, that Bruce Springsteen and I shared. He always said, if you want to do something, you really can do it. Of course, he was talking about me becoming heterosexual, but he really drummed that into me, and I feel that today. If you really want to do something, somehow you'll figure out a way to do it. And so it was with that spirit that I taught myself how to write.
2: But see, I, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I mean, don't you have to have some underlying talent? And I mean, you have to be able to, you know, a certain degree of I, I don't know if you'd say you were born with it, but there's something there that you, you you by pursuing it, you bring it out that gift or whatever it is. But, you know, can you really be a writer if you don't sort of have it in, you know, in you, uh, you can just learn how to be a writer? You are at the level that you're a writer? I, I don't think so.
0: Well, at the level that I'm a writer, I definitely learned that and taught myself to do it. I think if I, had, if I brought some talent to the table, it was that I knew how to tell a story. Um, but actually how to form sentences, put things together, tell the story over a long period of time. I learned from writing other books and uh, from reading other books, basically, and from writing my whole life. I mean, I'm going to be 71 now, so I've had a lot of writing experience behind me that produced this book, one of these things first, so um, I don't know, maybe you're right. Maybe you have to be born with something in you. But I think desire is 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 most important.
2: Yeah. Well, as you said, you're a gifted storyteller. I, I see that over and over again about you. And, of course, if anyone, when one reads the book, uh, you know that. I mean, um, so what's been, I'd like to hear some of, like, responses. You know, like, I'm sure your book touched a lot of people, obviously, and could relate to your story. So any stories that stand out for you that people have related to you since the book has come out?
0: Um, you know, it's been very, very gratifying because everything that I've ever written before, you know, there were people who liked it or didn't like it. But this time, it seems to have really struck a chord uh, in people. And um, I, a lot of people say that they cried reading the book. I always ask them, you know, where they cried. And it's always a, at, a different, at a different moment. I think what happens is, is that people really can identify. You don't have to be about being gay, but... You know, growing up, feeling hurt, not feeling right in the world, and um, and and the kind of um, scars that that can lead. So, um, it's gotten we've really great reviews. Uh, It's interesting because you know it's it's about a Jewish boy growing up in Brooklyn, but it's also something different. It's about a gay boy in a psychiatric hospital, Um, and so it's been difficult to really explain to people. I've talked at both gay venues, and in Jewish centers. Um, And those are the two audiences that I've talked to. And I I think um, the the Jewish center people are really fascinated that I felt rejected by God. And the people in the gay uh, uh, um, community can't understand why anybody would go through conversion therapy. And I'm sure, of course, now that we know it's impossible, you can't convert somebody. You know, it's hardwired. You're born that way. It's fruitless, and it's torture. And, in yeah, well, fact, and a con-
2: that was in the context of a totally different generation, right? I mean, so, yes, it would be – I can see how it's it would be difficult for people to understand that. You know, we have only three minutes left, so I just want to – what's it like? I mean, because this was a deeply personal story, obviously. Is it scary to do that? I mean, a memoir – I mean, I interview people who decide not – Necessarily to write a memoir, but a novel because it's. But you know, incorporating their story into the novel because it's too scary and too. uh You know, they feel like they're too sort uh, of naked, I guess, out there in terms of their emotions and everything. So they don't do that. But when you do, is it like when you not? You know, when you decide. Know,
0: I've led such I'm a read- public life. For me, it wasn't. You know, I'm. I'm already at least in my town, a public figure, it didn't. A lot of people said I was brave, and I thought, at what? I mean, what? That I was in a psychiatric hospital? In this day and age, you know, if you haven't been, you <laughs> <laughs> So, um, no, I didn't have any any concerns at all. If I got bad reviews, I would have felt embarrassed.
2: Yeah, so you had no reservations about doing that. That was like, no. yes.
0: No, yeah. I needed to get this story out desperately, desperately. Well, I had the time. It was really, really important that I got this story out, and I feel wonderful about it. And by the way, I think everybody should write a memoir, even if it's not published. I think we all need to get our stories told, written down somewhere.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good idea, and, and there there is a push to do that for people. You know, I think it, it's very cathartic. Uh, it may be in lieu of therapy, or it may be in conjunction with therapy. Yeah, but write your story. Get it down. It makes it real. Um, and does give you time to reflect. We only have a couple of minutes. So, Stephen, okay, tell us what you're doing now and a website we can go to. We can, this Now the book has come out in paperback. so
0: um, Right, with a much nicer cover. So it, um, you can just buy it on cover? Amazon or go into any independent bookstore, regular bookstore, and ask for it. One of these things first is the title of a song by Nick Drake, um, um, which is about the variations, all the possibilities of who we could be and what we could have been and how we... You know what determines what we are, so um, that's one way. My website is Stephen Gaines. One word with a V: S T E V E N G A I N E S dot com. And you can send me mail through that website if you want, or uh, or whatever. Great. But uh, Catherine, so thank you so much for having me on your show and letting me talk this much. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Well, you're great, and thanks so much for sharing your story again. Stephen Gaines, author of One of These Things First memoir. Great having you on the show today.
0: Thanks, Catherine. Bye now.
2: Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
3: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
1: Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Search Voice America at your favorite app store.
1: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is Cornelius Grove. He has a doctorate in education, and his book is The Drive to Learn, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Raising Students Who Excel. For decades, virtually every measure of American children's learning in school has come up with depressing findings. The U.S. is currently ranked number 25 in education globally behind countries such as Singapore, China, and Japan. Dr. Grove believes that our children's poor learning can't totally be the fault of American educators. Our children are also active participants as to what goes on in schools. He argues that children and their parents are part of the problem, so both must be part of the solution. He's a graduate of Johns Hopkins and Columbia University, presents speeches, papers, and coursework around the world on the contrast between U.S. and East Asian cultures, yielding fresh insights about the relationship of parenting to school success. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Cornelius.
4: Well, thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm here in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, so I guess we're talking to an audience that may be around the world.
2: Yeah, we are. We're talking <laughs> audience, so it doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. So, uh, which is appropriate for what we're going to be talking about. So, education. Actually, that statistic twenty. We're number twenty-five in the. I mean, that is. It sounds like a horrific statistic. Um, and I assume it is current and that we've been steadily declining in terms of how well uh, in terms of education, how we're ranked globally.
4: Well, um, the, the story is basically that uh, some, sometime in the late 1960s, international comparative tests started to be uh, given to, uh, obviously first to uh, children in just a few countries, and then more countries were added. But I think the United States was in from just about the beginning, and so was China. And uh, from, from the very first test right up to the present, East Asians, and East Asians are China, Japan, and Korea, East Asian students have always been at or near the top of the international rankings. And by the way, these tests are given in the fourth grade, the eighth grade, and the twelfth grade. And Americans have always been in the middle or below the middle. I think that... Fact is actually the more stunning one than uh, recently we were number twenty five. We've been in the middle or below the middle every single time the uh, comparison has been made. Right, so uh, then, th- that's what I think is damning.
2: Okay, so that's what's damning, and I guess in your your the main point, uh, it, uh one of the focus is the fact that we blame everything on the parents, that they're not doing it right or the school's not doing it right, but we really don't take a look at our children and see how they fit into the picture and how they're part of the problem and why we are number 25 or rank in the middle or the East Asian students do far better than the our students, the American students.
4: Remember that the international comparative tests are not the only measure we have of how well our children are doing in school. We also have our own uh, American tests, uh, uh, and uh, these also tell a very sad tale. I don't want to start getting into statistics and giving you websites because I have other things I want to talk about. Anybody who's interested in, in how well children are doing in school probably knows these factors and these websites already. Uh, They certainly were my motivation to try to figure this out. My observation is that over the years, uh, many, many years of school reform efforts of all different kinds, uh, the reforms have always been directed at the things that adults control, whether we're talking about teacher's aides or teachers or principals or guidance counselors or uh, school board members or even policymakers at the state or even the federal level, we consistently look at things that adults control and virtually never look at, at the things that parents and children control. Now, one exception to this is that we are concerned about poverty and nutrition and about family stability, uh, other than that, though, we basically don't pay attention to children. My view is, which you correctly stated, is that uh, the ones in school who aren't performing well or are the children. And uh, it's always seemed to me that we need to look at the children and see what, what we could find out by looking at them. And um, the reason I proceeded as I did is because... From the late 1960s, East Asian students have always done far better. Their measures of success in school are always better than ours, sometimes quite a spectacular amount better. And so uh, it turns out that this is not only of interest to me, but all the way back around 1970, it became of interest to scholars who were based in Asia. They were actually based at the University of Hong Kong at that time. Most of them were Australians. And they said to themselves, Well, this is very strange. You know, American, American classrooms are modern and they're using progressive methods and they have excellent facilities, and it's so different in China. How in the world can it be that the Chinese students always, without exception, do better than the American students? So they decided that they were going to see what they could find out about this. And uh, in the 45 years since then, a great effort has been put forward, not by not just by those original Researchers based in Hong Kong, but by increasingly an international group of researchers. And the important thing is that these folks didn't only look at schools, they didn't only look at classrooms, they didn't only look at teachers. They looked at everything that could possibly have to do with children's ability to learn in school. So they looked at the culture, they looked at the family structure. They looked at how children are generally raised in these cultures. They looked at parents' beliefs about children and their values having to do with learning and schooling and uh, a very, very wide range of factors. In the end, more than 500 studies were carried out. I think so actually-
2: I, I want to stop you there because you've mentioned a lot of different things, and obviously there are uh, huge cultural differences. So yes. I, you want to touch on some of those, and they've been studying this. You're saying for decades, but uh, you know the American culture versus uh, let's you know the uh, East Asian culture is very different in terms of parents and children, their relationship, and how they view education and. Uh, so what were some of the like the key points? Like what are the differences? What are the differences be- be- between the, the cultures really that, that create the kind of learning uh, that students have in each one of those cultures?
4: Let me, let me preface uh, my answer to that by saying that I, I finally, as I worked my way through many, many of those 500, over 500 research reports, I came to understand that the big difference has to do with children's receptivity to classroom learning. And this begins in the, their earliest uh, schooling experiences. East Asian children, not just Chinese, but Japan, Japanese and Korean, and probably true of other parts in Asia as well. But I, the, the same kind of research wasn't done there. Uh, they arrive at school more receptive. Now what do I mean by, by more what do I mean by receptive? I mean that the student, the child, feels deeply committed to learning in school, That he or she expects to work persistently in order to learn well and finally knows how to participate in the process of learning in school. These attitudes, this receptivity they bring from them, with them from home. It is not given to them by highly skilled teachers who somehow know how to motivate them. They bring it from home. And so what we need to look at the home is the home, and you're absolutely right. It's not just something that's going on in the home. It's not a couple of, you know, neat techniques that parents have it's uh, it's the whole culture it's a huge cultural difference and i think uh, fundamentally uh, americans live in a highly individualistic culture where the focus is very very squarely on the individual and what they can what that person can do for himself or herself whereas in asia the, uh, specialists like myself say that they have a collectivist culture, which means a group-oriented culture, and no group is more significant for a- for most Asians than the family. And so how people feel about their family and how families in Asia gain respect among their peers, or as the Asians would say, how they gain face or maintain face, is critical to understanding why Why these differences occur and how children come to school?
2: Well, that attitude hasn't that in in some instances, and you know we hear about well, there's there's such pressure on students in in Korea and China and Japan that the suicide rates are very high because there is a lot of shame if you don't do well in school. There is that you know the tiger mom, and uh, so that. And I don't exactly know what the statistics are in terms of students, the suicide rates for teenagers, but that it's pretty high and it's related to the the expectations that parents and families have for students to do well. How does that fit into the?
4: There's, there's no doubt that the situation in Korea, more so than in China and Japan, has uh, uh, brought about a, a great deal of concern. There are an unusual number of children committing suicide in Korea, and uh, that, that, that is something that I'm concerned about, and obviously Koreans are concerned about that, but... If we if we pull back from that, and by the way, most of the research, uh, the great majority of the research has been done in China and Japan, and, and uh, less uh, considerably less in Korea over the forty five years. Um, you certainly, I, I have written about uh, Amy Chua, the the Tiger Mother, and uh, how you know how how this fits into the picture. And um, I think in uh, Amy Chua's case, or the Tiger Mother's case, uh, her book certainly got a great deal of attention, because it had enormous shock value for American parents. And um, I, I can see why it, why it was shocking, and uh, maybe I, even I was shocked a little bit myself. It wasn't quite the way I was raised. Um, but when we look at the values and and the expectations and the the family oriented way of thinking about children and learning and schooling in east asia and it when we when we when i look at at what I get out of all these studies that were done over a 45 year period and boil them down to sort of the essential differences, the essential things that East Asian families bring to young children and compare them with, with what American parents bring to young children. A lot of, a lot, many of those themes, I dare say just about all of them, are reflected in in what Amy Chua did. Now, one, I think, can parents, uh, American parents, in my judgment, and I make this point uh, in the book, American parents definitely can learn something and, and pick up some ideas about how to think and how to behave and how to deal with their children and how to think about their learning from the East Asian example, you say I'm going to
2: start. You also say in the book uh, that you really you, you don't start at age five necessarily when they first go to school, but it begins in infancy. This this yeah. the way yeah. So how does that begin in infancy? How do you prepare students to be better students using the East uh, Asian model, um, starting in infancy?
4: What it is, it's again, it's this is not actually a matter of tools and techniques in infancy. It has to do with the culture of the family into which the, the uh, young child becomes assimilated. And that is a culture that greatly respects learning and that greatly expects to be, to, to be specific. It greatly expe- uh, respects academic learning and it, there's great respect for the hard work the actual time, the perseverance that that mastery of academic uh, learning requires. You may be uh, aware, I think many people are aware, uh, that uh, teachers in Asia, in East Asia, get a great deal of respect from uh, the members of their communities they, any anybody in East Asia who has mastered knowledge at a at a high level, um, you know, not not just in elementary school, but at the university level, for example, they get a great deal of respect. So teachers are highly respected. Anybody who masters knowledge is highly respected, and these are the attitudes and the values and the expectations that children pick up from their earliest days. It's just part of the milieu in which they live. So it's not so much that the parents are doing something specific. They are, the, ch- the child is gaining these attitudes and values, and then as the child gets older, the parents are following through in ways that, uh, you know, have certainly arisen from the research and that I can, uh, I can describe. Well,
2: Courtney, it's one of the things, yeah, uh, d- the word discipline keeps, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, there seems to be, uh, I mean, I was in uh, South Korea, probably three or four years ago, and and, t- and as you're describing, as a, a social worker and visited one of the schools of social work, and, uh, well, for one thing, discipline, I guess, you just discipline in the families, discipline in, in just the way they go about their business, something that you'd, Tend not to see so much here in the United States, you know, in the school system and other places, that that may be an issue. Another Um, issue,
4: yeah. I I would say that it's not so much that Asian parents have learned to discipline their unruly children.
2: I I actually don't mean discipline in that way, I mean it more disciplined, you know, rather than disciplining the children or punishing the children, but just having a different way of of uh of of teaching their children uh, in in a way that's more maybe structured I, I'm, I'm not sure that's the word either but
4: um, yes it's a matter of Of Growing up and learning how to be disciplined in terms of study, in terms of the time spent in study, in terms of the effort spent in study, in terms of the intention to master what you are studying and to do really, really well. I think that one of the the things that I think has really risen to the surface for me uh, as I was writing the book and drawing on all this uh, research which was done in East Asia was that there's quite a difference in how parents and really uh, all people in in the culture, in that culture over there or our culture over here, how we think about how we would answer the question, who is responsible for a child's learning? The research in the United States, the com- com- comparative side of the research in the United States, has uh, revealed that American parents, especially middle-class middle, middle class parents in the United States, uh, when in the child's earliest years, are very, very eager to see Intellectual growth and increased intellectual capabilities and skill on the part of their children. They they work hard. They feel very responsible for drawing this out. They read to the child. They get them blocks and they you know start working on letters and numbers and all those things. And if they can afford it, they might even you know, send their child to a program that uh, claims to make them into little Einsteins uh, or or little Mozarts. And so there's a lot of emphasis on this uh, in the home and, and even outside of the home. What seems to happen, though, is that when the child goes to school, not necessarily nursery school, but when the child starts going to school pretty regularly during the day, parents in the United States tend to think, okay, now the responsibility for the child's academic learning isn't mine anymore. It's the teacher's. And, and we, uh, the husband and the wife, if, there's, if there are two parents, I or we are going to support the teacher. We're going to support the school. We're going to see that the kid does their homework because that's a way we can support the teachers and, and so forth. In Asia, it's different what seems to happen in Asia is that parents never give up the responsibility for their child's learning. It is a very active responsibility for them. In different cultures, it begins at different times. It doesn't necessarily begin in the very first year of life. uh, But As the child gets older and begins to be capable of dealing with academic things, numbers and letters and reading and so forth, the the parents feel that they have an active responsibility to work together with the child to ensure that he or she is going to do very well in these academic ways and they share that responsibility and that continues as the child goes to school so the uh, some some authors some researchers say that the parent and child actually Share this responsibility. So, one of the things that happens in East Asia, just to give a, a, a nice uh, example. Is that certainly children come home with homework and they certainly are expected to do it. That's not a no, no difference there, but parents quite often then will purchase commercial workbooks that will take their child ahead of where their homework was. They they want to keep their child ahead of the class. They want them to really be the best. And so they'll sit with them and work on these workbooks that they that they purchase commercially. I don't know if you've seen the cover of my book, but it shows this happening. Parent and child are sitting together working on a workbook, not one that the school gave the child, but one that the parent gave the child. So this is an example of the kind of thing that I have in mind.
2: Well, I mean, there are so many issues to cover here. I mean, we've
1: yes. obviously
2: <laughs> touched on a, <laughs> on a few of them. But I I, I want to know, like, what do you... I mean, there's one of the things that you mentioned, and, and we do have time for this question. Um, you talk about the seven commitments to your child based on yep. the East Asian approach. Um, what is that? What, what are the seven commitments to your child?
4: Well, when I, when I got to the end of writing the book, this is in the next to the last chapter, uh, I... I thought, you know, there's a a great deal of interesting information here. Uh, There's a great deal of information about the history of East Asia as compared to the history of the United States. And by the way, I'm talking about deep history in our case going back to ancient Greece. uh, In the case of East Asia going back 5,000 years when when it's already been shown that agriculture was starting in China. Um, So there's a very deep history here, and of course it has affected the culture. One thing that was clear to me, Catherine, and that was that no, no book such as I would write or anyone would write, no act of Congress, no pronouncement by the Department of Education is going to change American culture. American culture is a highly individualistic culture, and with all that that brings, which is good, and some that's not so good. But the f- culture of families can change. This will. You know, my advice is only appropriate for parents who are, who believe that the most important thing for their child is to excel in school, to be at or near the top of the class, to do very, very well. And if that is the motive force behind the parents, as it is for many parents in East Asia, then I think there are certain things that parents can consider doing, both in how they think and in how they deal with their child around issues of learning in school. And so to try to boil it down, through all of my chapters in the book, by the way, uh, people should know that actually isn't a very long book. It's quite short. Uh, But I always summarize at the end of the chapter, and this is sort of this Parent summary at the end of the book, and yes, I did come up with what I called seven commitments for your child. Uh, If you're looking for an example, I can give you one that I think is very significant. And uh, that is yeah, give us the, one because we have
2: about three minutes left, so that would be good. Tell yeah, give us well, one, one of, of them.
4: the things. One of the things that arose yeah. out of the research unmistakably is that in the United States, parents tend to pay attention to their child's successes. And when the, when the child does really well in school, everybody's happy, uh, lots of congratulations, lots of smiles, and so forth. Uh, when, a, when a child does not do well in school... Uh, it 's not swept under the carpet or anything it 's not completely ignored, but it doesn 't get a lot of attention in the united states it just this is completely reversed in asia people The children do well in school well that 's very nice we don 't get very excited about it because that was the intent all along. But when they do poorly in a test or you know whatever then the parents tend to take a great interest in this, and they want to figure out with the child what went wrong, what didn't they understand, how can we make sure they understand it, do we need to drill something to make sure that this is very strongly uh, included in the child's knowledge base. So this is one of the seven commitments. Your failures will compel my attention. That's actually the fifth of the seven commitments.
2: That's great. Well, if people want to, in order, we have one minute left, so you have to get the book and read the book if you want to know what the rest of the commitments are. Um, and we, uh, Cornelius Grove, I've been talking to Cornelius, Cornelius Grove today. Um, Cornelius he could you please give us a website we can go to to get out more information about the uh, book and also I, more. About I, I was
4: waiting. That. I was waiting for you to ask. The, web, the okay. book has a website which summarizes the book and has quite a bit of other information. It is the the the, the drive to learn dot info. Notice that it's dot info. The drive to learn dot info.
2: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Cornelius Grove, author of The Drive to Learn, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Raising Students Who Excel. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox
1: Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more
0: interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.